We continue in our series that we have entitled Man at Work, looking at the life of Jesus through the gospel of Mark and learning how Jesus has paved the way for us, a sinful and a needy people, back to our Father God who is in heaven. And up to this point, we have seen the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We've seen Jesus come quickly onto the scene in Judea and uh, the area of Galilee in more particular. And up to this point, uh, Jesus has been teaching and preaching uh, the gospel of good news, uh, of course, and the new, uh, kingdom of God being at hand. And as a result of that, we've seen things like uh, Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River. We've seen him free people from demon possession, healing people from various illnesses and ailments, and uh, also finding himself uh, in, in an argument or a series of arguments with the religious leaders and uh, uh, religious uh, zealots of the day. And as a result of all of that, we see that Jesus is beginning to change lives. And as Jesus changes lives, the crowds begin to form around him. We're not just talking a small group of people. We're talking thousands of people are following Jesus. And as a result of that, the religious leaders and Pharisees and scribes of those days become angry with Jesus. They're hostile towards Jesus. And what we learned at the last uh, verse of the text we looked at last week was that they've come to a point after careful deliberation that they have now sided with the Herodians, another group of political uh, leaders, that they want to kill Jesus. So quickly into this, so soon into Jesus' ministry, where he has served and loved and ministered, a sinful man desires nothing more than to put him to death and rid this world of the greatest answer that we've ever needed. And so here we come to a place where Jesus begins to interact and I would say that he interacts with three types of people this morning. We're going to look at that as we look at this text this morning. So if you haven't yet, Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 35. I'm going to ask that you would stand for the reading of God's word as we look at this text starting in verse 7. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon. Because, the crowd, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell, uh, not to tell who he was. Jesus went up onto the mountainside and called to those whom he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them as apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Uh, he, he calls them, of course, the sons of thunder, and then Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Even when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? 
If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a, a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. It is then that Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will, does God's will, is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and... We are going to come into view of three types of people this morning. And the question that will be asked of us this morning as we look at this text is, what type of person are we? How do we respond to Jesus? What do we think of you? How has our life changed as a result of who you are? Are we an antagonist with those desiring to hurt your ministry and, and resolve in our hearts to uh, try to keep others from it? Are we merely just a spectator amongst the crowd, just enjoying the show? Or are we one who desires to follow after you? Lord, we want to be a part of your family. That is why we are here. And so, Lord, we pray that through the teaching of your word and through your spirit's leading this morning, that we will do the will of your Father in heaven so that we might be your mother, your brothers, and your sisters. Because it is there, Lord, where blessing can be found. It is there, Lord, where we can serve you with clean and pure hearts. Now, Lord, speak through me as we go to your word this morning. Allow it to teach us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Since the advent of the internet, businesses have long tried to find ways to use this new medium of communication for advertisement, for the sharing of ideas, but probably greater than any of those things, businesses have used it to try to sell products or services. And so what they will do is put together a website. The website will list all of the products and services that they offer. But the question that's always asked when we go to those websites, when we look at those products, is are they all that they were advertised to be? Are they the type of uh, refrigerator or the type of power tool or the type of clothing that, that will hold up over the course of time? Will it accomplish what we want it to? How about that service industry? Will that carpenter be on time and, and on budget and, and do the job that's asked of them? Will that uh, a restaurant uh, meet the needs that we have for that meal that we want to have uh, done for the important event that we're a part of? But here is where the internet helped us. Because it wasn't just businesses that were doing that, but now customers that have used those products or services, now through the medium of the internet, can share reviews. I don't know about you, but this is something that I look a lot to when I'm looking to purchase a particular item. 
In fact, Amanda and I just recently purchased a, a new dishwasher. And I went and I typed in the model number on the, on the Google uh, search uh, page. And I began to look at all the reviews. What were the pros? What were the cons? People that said wonderful things about that dishwasher. Others who couldn't stand it and didn't want anything to do with it ever again. And those customer reviews were incredibly helpful. You would see at the end of it all, they would say how many stars they would give, usually between one and five stars. I want to bring it to a spiritual side this morning because all of us have no doubt had a customer review uh, in our hearts and minds, whether or not we've done it on the internet or not. We give customer reviews all the time. Was that meal exactly what we wanted? Was that product what we thought it was going to be? Customer reviews define where our heart is on a particular thing that we've just bought. As Christians, we are, in fact, people who have bought into, and I don't want to be trite about this, but have bought into the work of Christ in our lives. And the question I have for us this morning is if we were sitting on Amazon or, or Google or, or Yahoo, would we begin as we type our review of Jesus, what would it look like? Would it be a positive review that Jesus has changed my life? I don't know where I would be without Jesus. Would it be more ho-hum? Yeah, in some ways Jesus has met the task that I was hoping he would, but, but in some ways he's really let me down. Or might some of you even say, it's all a joke. I've been around this Jesus, I've seen his people, and I want nothing to do with it. Jesus has only brought trouble to my marriage. Jesus has only brought trouble in my life. Jesus has only brought me uh, harm, and I don't want anything to do with him. In our text today, there are some customer reviews taking place with regards to Jesus. One is incredibly positive. One is, if you will, that two and a half to three stars. There's some good and there's some bad. And then one is incredibly negative. And the job that we have this morning is to ask which one best represents us. And you can't look at your neighbor and answer that question. You can't look at your spouse. Each of us must look inside of ourselves and ask the question, where does Jesus line up with me? Where does he stand as I evaluate who he is in his ministry in my life? As we look at this text, the first thing that we come up with, and I'm going to be bouncing all around the text, so if you like a nice orderly message starting with verse 7 and finishing up with verse 35, go to ABF. They'll help you with that this morning because we're going to bounce around a little bit. In fact, starting in the middle of the text and then moving our way back and forth. But the first group I want us to look at, the first review I want us to see comes from people that I define as the foes of Jesus. The foes of of Jesus. And the question is this morning, as we respond to Jesus, are we a foe? Are we one who is fighting against the ministry of Jesus in our lives? Now, the text tells us, in fact, my heading in my Bible says that crowds began to follow Jesus. And amidst those crowds, we are given an understanding that it's not just people who love Jesus, who long to be with Jesus, but there are these groups of men called Pharisees. We're going to learn about another group today called the scribes who have come into Jesus' uh, group that's following him, and they have no desire to learn from Jesus. They have no desire to uh, listen and be taught by Jesus. Their desire is to find a way that they can trip him up and accuse this new rabbi 
so that the followers will no longer follow him again. Now our text says that they had grown to hate Jesus. In verse 6, just prior to this, the text says, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This isn't just, uh, if you will, political punditry where one side is lashing out at the other side. This is, we want you dead. We don't want you on the face of the earth. We want you gone, and we're going to plot a way to get rid of you as soon as possible. Now notice for a moment where we see this all take place in verses 22 uh, through uh, 20, uh, let's see here, 29 and 30. It says the following, And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. The first way we know if we're a foe is we have to ask a question. Do we reject the works of Christ? Now the text says that these teachers of the law, literally the scribes, these are the guys that had the job of, of, of writing down meticulously uh, the Old Testament, the law of Moses, and to make sure that uh, it was there so that when people came to worship in the temple or the synagogue, uh, the reading of the law and prophets might be read. But this wasn't just a handful of guys that had gotten together. They didn't even maybe know that they were together. No, this was a delegation. They had come from Jerusalem. And they had come with one job in in mind. And that job was to tell others that Jesus wasn't who he said he was. Now notice, they don't say that Jesus is a fake. They don't say that he is one who's making up these things. Who could fake a man with a withered hand having his hand made whole? How could someone who has uh, been struck with leprosy be one who now is made whole? How do you fake that? How do you fake a demon-possessed man being made whole again? They don't say that. They don't even touch that. They're like, okay, he's doing some things. Nor do they say that he is a bad teacher. They don't got anything with his doctrine. Now, they're, they're a little mad that he's done some miracles, uh, on the day of uh, the Sabbath, but they're really upset with the power that he seems to have, and they address it right away. And what the response is, is that, hey, you're a pretty powerful guy, and how are we going to deal with this? And the response is very simple. You are of the devil. I wonder what the gasp was like when the angels in heaven heard frail man, stupid man, say to the God of the universe, you are the devil. I mean, there must have just been an eruption. Oh my goodness, this is how God's going to have it all laid down. The humans are dead once and for all. God's wasted his time and long enough with these dumb human beings, they're done. What an accusation. There's no greater accusation, I think, in all of Scripture than to call Jesus the Son of God the devil. But that's what they do. They say he's Beelzebub. He's the Lord of the flies. What a rejection to call God this. They rejected the works of Jesus. They saw him. They were a part of them, but they said there's got to be another answer. There's got to be something else. But notice that we see that Jesus rebukes them right away. I like Jesus' response. Look at verses 23 through 27. He says in verse 22 that he's been possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out 
demons. So Jesus called to them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? How can Satan drive out Satan? What Jesus says is, are you kidding me? I wonder if Jesus, in, in his Galilean way, stopped for a moment. Are you absurd? Just wait a minute. I know you guys need to be healed, but i got to deal with this thing over here. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in all my life. I wonder if Jesus, in his deity, heard a lot of dumb things from humans around him where he was just like, are you kidding me? As a father, I hear things from my sons, and I'm like, are, did I just hear that come out of your mouth? No, I mean, you're absurd to think that way. But I understand it. It's a kid. And Jesus looks at the ones that are the smartest. They're the teachers of the law, and he says, you think I am the devil. Well, let's deconstruct this stupid argument that you've come up with. Let's think through this logic, Pharisees and scribes of the law. The devil. You call me the devil, and you know of anybody that the devil longs to put people into bondage. The devil longs to possess people. The devil de desires to afflict people with all types of illnesses and sicknesses and ailments. To bring on all kinds of calamities and pains. Yet I have come, and I've done nothing like that. Why would I heal if I'm the devil? Why would I cast out demons if I'm the devil? Now, Jesus gives some parables. And Mark doesn't deal with the words of Jesus very often, so I want to look at them this morning. First of all, he deals with an illustration from what I would say is the secular word, the world, the secular world. And this is all within his rebuke that he's given. They've rejected the work, and now they're re being rebuked. And Jesus says, let's look at the secular world for a moment. And he says, let's look at a kingdom or a country. And what he says is that if a country or kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom or country will not stand. The idea here is Jesus says, okay, let's think about that for a moment. If the devil is casting out demons, it is no different than a country that is having civil war with one another, brother fighting brother, citizen against citizen. Even with all the upheaval, there's nothing worse in all of a nation's history than when a, when a country has to endure the pain and trouble that comes from fighting amongst itself. About five years of civil war in this country would lead to the most deaths of Americans brothers fighting against brothers, neighbors against neighbors. And it would take years after all the upheaval is over. The United States would still struggle with the unity that needed to be brought back to be the nation that it needed to be. And Jesus says, hey, a kingdom can't do it. A country can't do it. But notice he goes to the social world and he says, how about a house in verse 25? He says, a kingdom can't stand by itself if it's divided. But he says in verse 25, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. What chance does a family have of being a successful, vibrant, and healthy family if mom and dad are fighting? If they're at each other's throats, the kids will side with the one that they uh, care about more. And as a result of that, the family ceases to be a family because they're in conflict with one another. The children and the siblings are busy fighting with one another. What happens is, is they cease to be the family that God has called them in. 
There's no bonds anymore for, of mutual help and encouragement. Because brother hates brother, and as a result of that, a family divided against itself will find itself in total ruin and chaos. So Jesus says, hey, your argument doesn't line up with the uh, world uh, of nations. It doesn't involve the family. That doesn't work. So he says, let's get down to the bottom of it. You want to have a theological conversation? Let's look at verse 26. He says, how about the spirit world? What about in the spirit world? And he says the following. He says, and if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. Jesus says, all right, you think I'm the devil, and I'm casting out demons. That's me fighting against myself. And Jesus says, hey, I know you guys think you're smart, but I was there the day that the devil fell from heaven. And what I know is that the devil didn't go by himself, but that the devil went with a third of the angels. And the last thing that the devil wants to do is he doesn't want to get rid of his associates. He needs them. He needs their help. He needs the demons to do his bidding. And so the last thing he's going to do is start attacking with friendly fire, uh, going after them. So Jesus begins to deconstruct this argument. It doesn't work in the kingdom realm. It doesn't work in the family or the house realm. It doesn't work in the spiritual realm. So this is what Jesus' answer is. He says, you are correct. The devil is a strong man. And you are correct that the devil would have power over demons. But let me tell you something. The devil is a strong man, and he lives in a vast and stronghold of a home. But I am greater than he. I am stronger than he is. I go into his house, it says in verse 27, and I bind him up. I put chains around him. And I take back all that he has stolen from everyone. And I take it up and I pull in all his possessions and I take them from him. What is he talking about here? Jesus is a thief? Jesus is one going into a home? So that he can take from the devil? Yes. The world and all that's in it, including humanity, had fallen under the bondage of the devil. And Jesus came as the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, with one job in mind, to bring glory back to God by the redeeming, by the taking back by which, of the things by which that the devil had taken away in the first place. And so Jesus' job was to be that stronger man who could do stronger things so that they would be taken back. I love what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, hey, you think I'm the devil. I'm not. I'm stronger than the devil, which would have made them even more upset because it is there that he would be, in their opinion, blaspheming the name of God. He would be calling himself God himself. And as a result of that, As a result of what has transpired there, they're going to want to kill him all the more. And so we need to understand that here, as a result of that, they want to kill him. And Jesus says, hey, I'm God, and if you don't like it, then it's time for you to get out of here. Notice the second, the third thing that we have here. This is a little extra credit here, if you will. They are reminded, write this down, they are reminded by the warnings of Christ. It's free of charge. I'm giving it to you. You don't have to pay me for this. 
And this is where in verse 28 through 30, Jesus says this. And this is a text that bothers a lot of Christians. This is a text that there's a lot of struggles and there's a lot of pains and a lot of heartache come from this passage because we begin to wonder what is this sin that Jesus is talking about. So let's look at it, verse 28 through 30. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of man will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will, be forgive, will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. What is this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It's been called the unforgivable sin. And a lot of you have probably wondered that. As a kid, I remember hearing this and saying, I know I'm a bad kid, so I've probably already committed this sin. And it's unforgivable, and I'm in trouble. But here's what we need to understand about the text. When you look at what the Pharisees and the scribes were talking about, what's happening is, is they are rejecting the power, both seen and unseen, of God. They're rejecting what Jesus says about who he is. And when you willfully reject, when you turn in disgust and disregard for the work and words of the Spirit, there is nothing, there is nothing that can be done to forgive that. When you keep saying, when the Spirit says, you need to come to Jesus, and you need to bow the knee to Jesus, and the individual says, no, I don't want Jesus. I don't want that garbage around here. Get that away from me. There is nothing that will redeem that person because they have pushed away the answer. And what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is, be careful. You are walking where angels fear to tread. You're calling me things that are not true, and as a result of that, you are pushing away your only answer for hope. And so here's the thing I want you to know. Jesus warns them, and the warning is important because some of you will say, well, how do I know I've not committed this sin? The warning comes in because the Pharisees hadn't even committed that sin yet. Why would Jesus warn the Pharisees of a sin that they've already committed? Why would he do that unless they were continually in a, a habitual walk of disregarding and disrespecting the place of Christ in their life? And if that's what they were doing, there would be a time where that sin would be unforgivable. And here's the thing. A person who is sinning the sin that is unforgivable or blaspheming the Holy Spirit is the unbeliever, hear me out very clearly, is the unbeliever who habitually and throughout their entire life, says no to Jesus. That sin is the sin that cannot be forgiven. Because that is the sin that is saying no to the answer that has been given. It is saying no to fellowship with God. It is saying no to the Spirit's work because the Spirit has come to lead in truth, to convict with, uh, uh, with regards to evil, and to lead into righteousness. And so the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the habitual rebellion against God. What it means is if you've never bowed the knee to Jesus, there's a warning for you this morning. And the warning is, get right with your God. Because if you don't, there's nothing on the day of judgment that is going to help you out. You see, hell is reserved for people who day in and day out say no to Jesus. 
And when you continue to say no to Jesus, I don't care what your life looks like on the outside, but in your heart you say, you know, this is all a joke. I I don't need this Jesus. I, I don't need him in my life. Be careful because Jesus is warning that there's a sin and that sin is seen in a lifetime of disregard for God. We need to be careful. So the question this morning is, is are you a foe? Are you cold to the work of Christ? Are you quick to disregard the word of Christ and try to do all that you can to explain it away with worthless notions and ideas? This is what the Pharisees did, and we do this today as well. I have family and friends who will say that Jesus is a good teacher. How can Jesus be a good teacher if he says that you're going to go to hell if you don't believe him? Well, I don't believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but he's a good teacher. He says he was the way, the truth, and the life. How can he be so exclusive when you are so inclusive and yet you say he's a great teacher? See, we make these arguments that don't hold water because we want to mold Jesus into what we want him to be. And Jesus says, no, I'm Lord, I'm King, now start worshiping me. Notice the next group of people that we see. There are fans. There are fans. These are the people who give half-hearted praise. They are the ones who are, are asking the question, what have you done for me lately? They are those who give praise one day because it seems fit to do so, but the other day they're the ones that are yelling all of their complaints and anger towards the individual they've just so quickly praised. They're fair-weather fans. Notice it is seen in this that fans are always a part of the crowd. They're always a part of the crowd. I love this word crowd. Mark uses it over and over again, not only in this text, but other texts to come. But five times in our text, the word crowd is used. Verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 20, and verse 32. Now crowds, on the good side, can be great things. A crowd brings excitement. A crowd can bring great amounts of joy. There can be great fellowship in a crowd. We are a crowd this morning a group of people, and we're a people that have come, a crowd that has come together uh, under one mantle, under one allegiance. But crowds can be a dangerous thing as well. Crowds can lead the weak to do things they never wanted to do. We call that peer pressure. Crowds can be dangerous. Some of you went out on Black Friday or, or uh, Wonderful Thursday or whatever they're going to call Thanksgiving now that they open the stores up as they do. i got to admit something to you. Amanda sent me out. She said I wouldn't stay married to her unless I went out on Thursday night, 10 o'clock. And she sent me to Walmart, okay? And so at 9.30 I roll into Walmart, and i got to confess to you, I felt dirty being there. I felt like I was a, bun- a, a rat amongst a bunch of rats, and in Walmart, what was happening was is the, te- the tension was so thick, you could cut it with a knife. Because everybody was there, and they're trying to be full of holiday cheer. But what happened was is the Walmart associates you walked down the aisle and said, all right, how many of you are here for the power wheels? And they have three, two or three power wheels, and there's 30 people waiting for that stupid car. And so the arms then go up, and then instantly, the vying for space 
began to take place. I can't say why I was there because there are ears in this room and we'll leave it at that. But what happened was is when I was waiting for my item, I I wanted to have some fun with the crowd. Your pastor, it's 10 o'clock, Thanksgiving night. And so they say, power wheels. Who's here for the power wheels? I yell, deodorant. Who's here for deodorant? We have a special on toilet paper. And then the guy next to me, 75, 80-year-old man, is there to pick up a ping pong table for his grandchildren. And I said, I just want you to know, 10 o'clock rolls around, I'm knocking you over. And for a moment, great trepidation came. I said, I'm just kidding with you. I won't push you over. I said, I don't even want a ping pong table. And, I, and he says, well, that would be a great story to tell the kids. A big, bald guy knocked me over while trying to get it. By the way, let the record show I helped that man get that large ping pong table onto his cart. Okay? Whatever. Okay. So here's the thing I want you to know about crowds. You say, Tim, what in the world are you talking about? Crowds are filled with selfish people. Okay? You want to know what the crowd that was surrounding Jesus was all about? It was about me. Jesus was the new thing. And there was not enough of Jesus to go around. And so the crowd said, what about me? Make sure I get this. I can't tell you how odd it was walking around a Walmart afterwards. I called him in. I said, I got what we were needing. It wasn't really as hot of an item as we thought it might have been. And, and so we got it. And I, I said, I'm just going to walk around. And the people pushing. And the, it's mine. It's mine. I'm like, am I in the Badal house? That's mine. Get out of my way. Who said you could cut in line? This is what's going on with Jesus. People wanting something from him, pushing and shoving. Thousands of people. And I want you to understand, the people in the crowd selfishly clamored for him. The text tells us that they had come to him in verse 8. In verse 8 it says, when they heard all he was doing, many people came, and it says, from all different places of the area. And what did they want? They didn't want to worship Jesus. They didn't want to take care of Jesus. In fact, the crowd was such, uh, so selfish and so uh, focused in on getting their own desires that they didn't care that Jesus hadn't gotten anything to eat later in the text. They didn't care whether or not they crushed him. Who cares? I just want to touch him. Because if I touch him, I might be healed. They didn't care that Jesus' life was at risk or in danger as a result of what was taking place. And so here we have this crowd, some believed to be in the thousands, clamoring for Jesus out of selfishness. Crowds can be a great thing. But what I've learned from Jesus is Jesus hated the crowd because the crowd caused Jesus to withdraw. It caused Jesus to withdraw. And Jesus would happen in verse 7, And in verse 9, Jesus said, get me out of here. I got to get out of here. Jesus wasn't a fan of the crowds. In fact, Jesus in John chapter 6 has just fed the 5,000. And they come back the next day. And they say to him, what meal are you going to give us now? What sign are you going to do for us now? And Jesus says, hey, what I want you to do is I want you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You can't be a disciple until you do that. And the church 
that Jesus had of 5,000 people went down in one sermon to 12. And even the 12 disciples looked at Jesus and said, these are hard words. Who can understand them? And Jesus asked the question, are you going to go too? Jesus hated the crowds. Oh, did he minister to them? Yes. But the crowd was pursuing selfish things. But Jesus was wanting to seek and to save that which was lost. They didn't care whether he was tired or hungry or if he's what was needed in Jesus' life, it was all about them. Now notice one other thing about the crowd, which I've learned this week in my study, that the crowd tried to control Jesus. They tried to control Jesus. Look at the text in verse 20 and 21. The text says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again the crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, the family's a part of the crowd. You say, Tim, I'm not a part of the crowd. I'm a follower of Jesus. And I'm not just some fair-weather fan. I'm, I'm really there. Jesus and I are close. You would have thought that Jesus' biological family would have said the same thing. But notice what Jesus' biological family does. It says there in the text that they went into the house to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. The first thing that you need to understand is what they want to do is they want to seize him. Literally, they want to arrest him. They want to take hold of him. They want to grab him and get him out of there. Not ask him any questions because he's out of his mind. Now, why in the world would Jesus have been out of his mind per their understanding? A couple things that we need to understand. First of all, his family probably thought that he had left a good occupation as a carpenter to preach. Something's wrong with that. Next, the religious leaders were threatening his life. They wanted him dead, and this guy wouldn't back down. And so the family's like, man, this guy's a glutton for punishment. We've got to deal with this. Let's get him out of this area of, of, uh, of trouble. Third, huge crowds were following him, and I wonder if his family was asking, has the notoriety gotten to his head? Is he filled with himself? Got to get him out of this situation. Maybe they wondered... What in the world is he doing now? He's associating with a motley crew of people, some zealots, a tax collector, some fishermen. This isn't the Jesus that we remember. We've got to get him out of it. Maybe it was the pressure of such a task that they knew it was more than he could handle. The guy's not even eating. You've got to get him out. You know you're a part of the crowd. Number one, when your desire to get to Jesus is for selfish gain. And number two, when you desire to control Jesus instead of Jesus controlling you. They thought he was mad. And when Jesus sometimes calls us to things, the greatest thing that separates the fan from the follower, which I'll talk about here in a moment, is that when Jesus tells us to do something, the follower says, yes. The fan says, you've got to be kidding me. There's no wisdom in that. There's no real good understanding of why I would do such a thing. The follower says, yes, I'll go wherever you call me. Lord, I'll do whatever you want. The fan says, no, nah, that doesn't work with, with who I am. And so, Jesus, let's, let's, let's talk about this again, and let's, let's restructure this idea because it doesn't seem to work. Are you a part of the crowd this morning? You may like Jesus, and that's good, but are you following him? I like what Ray Steadman says, and I'll close with this, of, of this point. It says, it's wonderful for people to be attracted to Jesus. 
But if their focus is on what he can do for them instead of who he is, then you won't follow Jesus very long. Why are you attracted to him this morning? Well, there's one final group this morning that I want to look at. I don't have a lot of time left, but let me just quickly go through this, and it's that of the follower. We have a foe, we have a fan, and now we have a follower. Jesus, we see, of course, is, is calling his disciples, the 12. We've seen that he's called uh, four up to this point, and now he's about to call the 12. And we're going to be given their names. These are the men that are going to be closest to Jesus. Verses 13 says that he went up to a mountainside and called to those whom he wanted so that they came to him. And he appointed 12, designating them apostles. He says, I'm going to pick some that are going to walk with me, that are going to become like me. But who do those people look like and what, are, what is their job? Their job, number one, is to respond to the call to follow him. It says that he called them. He called them by name. And he called them for a task. A task to follow him. Nothing more. Just watch my pattern of life and do as I do. Talk as I talk. Live as I live. Love as I love. Deal with persecution as I deal with persecution. Follow me, and you will become like me. Now here's the amazing thing. Twelve men, all different backgrounds, all different personalities, all different temperaments and strengths and weaknesses, and they had one thing in common that settled the stage for them once and for all, and that was they had received a call from Jesus, and they had followed. What a picture of the church. We're all different. We have all different backgrounds. We come from all different ways of life. But the one thing that all of us have in common is that we all can say with one voice, Jesus came calling and I've responded. And that's what binds us together. That's what brings the unity of the Spirit. I want you to notice that no matter their past sins, no matter their past failures, no the issues or their brokenness, None of that. Jesus calls them and says, I'm going to make you great. Not by the world's standards, but by my Father's standards. Notice this. He does not call volunteers. Nowhere in the text does Jesus say, can I get a show of hands? Who wants to come with me? Jesus isn't asking for that. Jesus is looking at you. Not your family, not your church, not uh, your friends, your group of friends. Jesus is looking to you and saying, will you follow me? Are you going to do it? And a follower is one who says, not because his friends say it or his parents say it or his family says it, but he says it in his heart because of the faith that God gives, I will follow. Number two there. They needed to experience an ongoing connection with him. Look at verse 14. He appointed 12, and he says, designating them apostles that they might be with him. Jesus never said at the end of his sermon, all right, who's in? Raise your hands. Jesus said, you want to walk with me? You want to talk like me? You want to live like I do? then it means you're going to live with me. And we're going to spend time together. And you're going to see how I live my life. And it's going to mean ongoing commitment. 
It's going to mean a desire to be with Jesus and engage our lives with Jesus every step of the way so that we will have the privilege to see the world as Jesus does. To be like Jesus means we have to commune with Jesus each and every day. A fan just needs to see Jesus every once in a while. Can I be brutally honest this morning and say, my biggest fear as a pastor in an American evangelical church is that I'm preaching to a fan-based group of people. That some of you here are just here on Sunday. Give me my Jesus. Give me just a little of Jesus, just enough to get through the week. Let me tell you something. A follower walks with Jesus Sunday through Saturday. And he comes back on Sunday and he praises God that the grace was sufficient to get him through the day because that sinner is prone to failure. But if you're here because it's just something you do, because you like what we sing, because you like the programs, because you like the people, then something is terribly run amok in your life. A couple other quick things this morning. i got to go here. But pursuing a commitment to obedience, verse 34 tells us that Jesus is speaking and his family comes in and they say, hey, your family's here, your mom's here, your brothers are here. And Jesus' response is a word to us. And the word is, if you want to be close to Jesus, if you want to have intimacy with Jesus, it means you have to do the will of God the Father in heaven. You want to be his real family? You want to walk and talk with Jesus? You want to experience him? Then you have to be committed to obedience with him. You have to obey. You have to follow. And finally, you have to live out the Great Commission. you got to live out the Great Commission. You say, Tim, where's the Great Commission in this? This is, Matthew, this is not Matthew 28. This is what Jesus says. He calls the 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach, to have authority to drive out demons. Let me tell you something. Some of you are fully content in hanging out with Jesus. You're a follower. And you love just, just give me more Jesus. Give me more Bible teaching. Give me more fellowship. I can't get enough of it. Jesus said, hey, in three years, disciples, I'm going to be gone. And the work that you're going to have is you're going to leave Jerusalem and you're going to go to the uttermost parts of the world and you're going to share the gospel that I've given you to the world around it. And it involves preaching the gospel it involves ministering to people as Jesus did, and it involves waging war against the devil. We cannot, as Christians in this church, sit here and sing kumbaya and think that we're true followers of Christ. But we have to come in and be encouraged and be taught, and we need to be released out of this place so we can go to the towns and the neighborhoods we live in, to the office places where we work, to the schools that we attend, so that we can be like Jesus because the world is dying, they're going to hell, and they need Jesus in their life, and who's going to tell them about it if we don't? And so this is what we need to ask this morning. Are you a foe? Are you fighting Jesus? And if you are, I implore you today, quit your fighting, quit your rebellion, and bow the knee to Jesus. If you're a fan this morning, stop playing games. If you want entertainment, go home and watch some TV. Jesus is not a show that we watch. Jesus is the person who changes lives.
and we are called to follow him, we are called to love him, and we are called to go and tell the world around us about him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would do work on each of our hearts. Lord, it's easy for us to look down the aisle and say, that person really needed this message this morning. Boy, I'm glad Tim really preached to so-and-so because I just think they're a fan. Lord, would you work on my heart this morning? There are so many times where I find myself just watching you. And it's entertaining and it's fun. It's neat to see what you do, but sometimes it doesn't change my life. Lord, I need to be a follower. And Lord, I pray that for my brothers and sisters, that we would hear your calling and that we would say, wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you send me, I will go. Whatever you call me to do, I will do. Because you're not looking for people to hang out with. You're not just looking for people to watch what you do, but you're looking for people who will follow you all the days of our lives. So Lord, I pray that we'd have the Spirit's power to be able to do that this morning. Lord, I pray that we'd be a church of followers. Lord, that we would not become engrossed with a growing church and the growing numbers and new services, but that we would speak boldly your word and that we would call people to commitment Because if not, Lord, we're just filling a building and we're putting on a show. And Lord, you say that you want nothing to do with that. And Lord, we don't want you to be taken away or to withdraw from this place. And so we give our heartfelt desire. It's our want to follow you. Now, Lord, give us the grace. Give us the endurance. Give us the help that we need to accomplish that end. Now, Lord, as we leave this place, we leave us those who desire to follow you. Lord, let us live it out in the moment we stand up to love as you did, to encourage, to give hope, to speak the truth in love to a world that needs it. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen.